Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're going to continue our series, New Thing, today, week four of the series, and today's kind of a milestone. We're going to finish Acts chapter three today. It only took four months to get through three chapters in Acts, but here we are. And uh, we are about halfway through this series because New Thing will continue on through about halfway through Acts chapter 5. Uh, but we're looking at how the church really started to gain some momentum, started to gain some traction, started really to spread. And we see here in Acts 3, it started really uh, in Acts 2 with the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people come to faith in Christ on this powerful day, where the Holy Spirit just makes a grand entrance into the first century world. And then in Acts 3, uh, Peter and John are walking to the temple at a time of prayer one day. Uh, the whole community is kind of out and about, but there's this beggar who is there, lame, laying at the, at the foot of this gate and he's begging that's what he does for a living and Peter and John through the power of the name of Jesus heal this man he is miraculously healed and then Peter takes this opportunity with this sign and the crowd around them to tell people how this miracle happened and he tells them this came through the powerful name of Jesus so he explains that part of it but then as we mentioned last week he said What Jesus did is not just miraculous power for this man, but he came to make you a new person. And he explains part of what the gospel is through that. And so we looked at last week. We'll recap quickly because we'll kind of bungee off of that into this week. They're connected. So the two parts of last week were first, before we're a new person, we're living in ignorance. We're living in sin. We're living apart from God. But then the key to becoming a new person is repentance. Repentance of our ignorance. We're turning from sin, turning to God to become this new person. But then Peter continues on, as we'll see today, and he tells the crowd, Jesus makes you a new person in order to offer you a new life. A new person living a new life. So today we'll look at what does this new life look like, practically? What are the benefits of the new life that Jesus offers us? So we had two key words last week. We'll look at three key words from a few verses in Acts 3 today as we finish up Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 3. Three key words that point to benefits of a new life in Christ. And so we'll look at them here for just a few moments. The first word that Peter describes our new life in Christ is this word refreshment. Refreshment. Acts chapter 3 verse 20 Peter says, then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. Refreshment. Think about, you know, yesterday was hot, today's going to be hot. Think about if you're out maybe working or you're outside and it's hot and the sun is beating down and you're starting to sweat and you're getting parched and you kind of feel lightheaded, maybe a little, you know, dehydrated and you just like, I just need an ice cold glass of water. And then someone at that moment just offers you this nice big glass of ice cold water. It's refreshment. Peter says that is what your new life in Christ is like. 
It's refreshment. It's just what you needed just when you needed it. Repentance, as we talked about last week, leads to this refreshment. And really, in a spiritual sense, this refreshment is, another way you could describe it is relief. Almost like when you take that sip of water and then you go, ah, it's relief. And this is refreshment that leads to relief because of a reset, spiritually. Because this life of refreshment means that now we obtain forgiveness from our sins. Now we are at peace with God. Now all is right spiritually in our world. And really what it comes down to is now I can breathe. So everybody do this with me real quick. Everybody take a deep breath in and then let it out. One more time. Breathe in and out. Peter says that's what your new life in Christ is like. You can breathe. It's refreshing. It's refreshment. And the cool part about this refreshment is it's not just a one-time thing that happens one day when you make one decision. Now it is, but it's not just that. It's not just a momentary refreshment. It's not just short-term refreshment. Peter says this refreshment is the new reality of your new life in Christ. And Jesus shows us this as well. This is Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. This is the offer that Jesus makes to all of us. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. I think many times people reject Jesus because they misunderstand what he's offering them. People apart from faith in Christ will say, I'm fine how I am now. Life is okay. I'm no better, no worse than anybody else. They would say, I don't need to bring Jesus in to have more people tell me what to do. I don't need to read the Bible to have more rules. I already have enough rules and parameters in my life. I don't need to add to that. I don't want Jesus to cramp my style. You know, I don't need that in my life. But Jesus says, no, you're seeing everything backwards. What he's saying here in Matthew 11, Jesus says, you're weary first because of your sin. You're carrying these heavy loads of guilt and shame because you can't measure up. You can't be enough. You're a sinner. You're tired. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. You can give me those burdens. You can give me that guilt. You can give me that shame. I'll take it off your back so you can breathe. He brings refreshment. But it's not just that one moment. It's not just that one decision. That's just day one of the rest of your new life in Christ is a life of refreshment. Because what Jesus, I think, is also getting at here, Matthew 11, is even as a Christ follower, he says, you may be weary from the cares of life. Jesus says, come to me. You might have burdens that you're carrying that are weighing you down. Jesus says, come to me. You might have so many responsibilities and people counting on you. Jesus says, come to me. Maybe life is beating you up. It's beating you down. Jesus says, you're catching on. He says, come to me. One more time. Jesus says, maybe you're tired of the rat race in life. Jesus says, come to me. 
Come to me if you're tired, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened down, if you're dragging through life, if you're about to quit and give up and give. And he says, don't do that. Just give it all to me. Come to me. I'm all that you need. I'll be your refreshment. It's the kind of rest that you need that only Jesus can give. The recharge that you need, only Jesus can provide. The kind of refreshment that we seek and desire and need, only Jesus can provide. So it's important, here's the challenge, that we take time to be with him, to receive that refreshment from him. That we make the time to set aside, to spend in his presence to receive this rest that we need to make ourselves slow down at times at seasons to make ourselves just sit in the quiet and get used to that because that's where the recharge and refreshment comes jesus offers us this life this new life of refreshment peter goes on then to talk about the second word that we'll explore for a few minutes it's restoration this new life involves restoration. The next verse in Acts, Acts 3, 21, Peter says, For Jesus must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. So Peter's talking about this future restoration promised long ago by the prophets. Here's an example of what one of those promises may have sounded like to the crowd here in Acts 3. Isaiah 35, verse 6. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. Now, I mentioned this and referenced this specific prophecy intentionally because of the parallel to Acts 3. The lame will leap like a deer. That is exactly what they've just seen in Acts chapter 3. This lame beggar who day after day after day is sitting in the same spot, in the same condition, is now up leaping and praising God, just like Isaiah said. And Peter is telling the crowd that this is a glimpse of the restoration that Christ offers in your new life. Now, we know ultimate restoration is a spiritual thing. Ultimate restoration is a restored relationship with God because as we said during communion earlier our sin separates us from God it fractures that perfect relationship with him and then we tie in last week as we repent of our sins we experience this restoration in that relationship we're now at one with God we're now in perfect united or reunited and it feels so good relationship with God but Peter, notice exactly what he says here in this verse. He says, Christ must remain in heaven until the time of final restoration of all things. So the prophecies from Isaiah and the Old Testament have been partially experienced even in Acts 3. We see this, this man leaping like a deer earlier in Acts 3, but this restoration has not yet been fully realized. And it's this idea that we mentioned before, but it's this tension that we live in between the already and the not yet. Because Christ has already accomplished everything needed for full restoration. That's already happened, but we have not yet fully experienced that as we one day will. We're living in that tension between the already and the not yet. Christ has done the work, but we've yet to fully experience that. And you know this to be true. Because life stinks much of the time. Life is painful much of the time. 
Our bodies break down. Our bodies get sick. There's disease, famine, war everywhere. We, we enter into spiritual battles. But Paul knew of this tension, of this reality between the already and the not yet, and he luckily writes about it here. So let's explore Romans 8, uh, verses 18 through 25 for just a couple minutes. We're going to walk through it. And what I love about Peter and Paul and how they work together in Scripture is in Acts 3, Peter is like in the moment living through the reality of all the stuff that's going on. And he's having to explain on the spot, in the moment, to a crowd, this deep theological stuff that he hasn't yet quite worked out himself. And then Paul comes in a few years later, being the brilliant mind that he is and having the training that even Peter didn't have, to more fully in his letters explain what Peter was saying in a very bare-bones kind of way. So Peter, or, or Paul, sort of fleshes out what Peter lets us in on in Acts 3. So Romans 8, 18 through 25, talking again about this tension between restoration that we can experience but that we haven't fully yet. Romans 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Now catch this. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. So you know why we have tornadoes, you know why we have hurricanes, natural disasters. It's one of the effects of the curse of sin from Genesis chapter 3. Now some people who are not don't even think in terms of faith, aren't going to buy that, then I, that's the best I got for you, okay? That's the, best, that's the best I can do. I can't convince you of that. I'm just telling you that's what Paul's saying here. The curse all the way back in Genesis 3 that we think just makes us sinners also fractured all of creation. Everything was affected, was cursed. He goes on to say this, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. I should have read this next week for Mother's Day, maybe. I should have saved this one. We know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Isn't that right? We long for that day. We too wait with eager hope. For the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved already, right? If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. The already and the not yet. We live in between those two realities. And Paul says that. All creation fractured by sin. All existence is affected by sin. Everything is cursed. We look around and see that that's plain. All around us is death, decay, destruction, injustice, suffering. We see that. We live in that. But the key theme of this passage is not suffering or despair. The key theme, the word that's repeated four times in these six verses, seven verses, is the word hope. That's the key theme. It seems like all the bad stuff, all the bad stuff. Paul's saying, no, 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 that's temporary, that's right now, but we hope for this future restoration of all things. Creation hoped for the future restoration. We as followers of Jesus hope for this future restoration. The question is, though, with all that we see around us and experience, we don't maybe see a lot of that hope all the time. 
So the question is, how can we hope in that? Why would you hope for something that is not obvious around you at all? And in what can we place our hope that, P that Paul is talking about and Peter alludes to in Acts 3? The good news is that we place our hope in Jesus, who defeated sin on the cross and defeated death through his resurrection. We live, as Paul says four times in Romans 8 here, we live in expectant hope of future full restoration. Now, even as we see in Acts 3, we get glimpses of that. We, we get a miraculous healing here. Even now, we get an answered prayer here. We get, you know, a miracle there. We see signs and reports of God doing some things, but we can sense his presence to a degree here. Supernatural wisdom direction from God here and now, but that's still not quite full, is it? It's not quite final restoration, is it? And that's, um, that's our hope. Our ultimate hope is as new people living a new life, we get glimpses of this restoration, but our ultimate hope is that one day we will experience the full and final restoration that awaits us. And that's what John, one of the final parts of the Bible, Revelation 21, John gives us an idea of what that full, final restoration will look like. Revelation 21, 3 through 5, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Jesus says, John, write this down. You'll want to know this later. When life comes at you fast after you see this vision of heaven, you're going to need this. Your hope is going to be based in this vision of the future restoration, the future glory that awaits you. Because John is, is an old man on this island by himself, right? he's just going to out there to die on his own. That's his existence. And God gives him this revelation of future events and eventually here of heaven. He says, write it down. Because we need to remember this. If you're a new person living a new life, this is your basis for hope. We get glimpses of the restoration now, but full and final restoration still awaits us. That's what should get us up in the morning. I got to get through this day, but I'm going to get through to a different day one day. That's where we are. That is the hope of those who have put on a new life in Christ. We could say a lot more about that, but let's move on and get to the, the final word that Peter gets to in Acts 3. So this new life in Christ is a life of refreshment and restoration. Finally, Peter says this is a life of blessing. This new life in Christ is a life of blessing. Acts 3, back to Acts 3, verses 25 and 26. Peter says this, You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, Through your descendants, all the families on the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you, people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. So Peter references Abraham, and this is one of the first covenants that God makes with a human, one of the first. And it's a big one. A covenant's just an agreement between two parties. 
contract, if you will. And so God makes an agreement with people in the Old Testament. One of them is Abraham. And it affects not just Abraham, Peter says, and you probably know, but his descendants forever and ever and ever. Peter says, even you in the crowd right now that I'm talking to in Acts 3, you're the descendants. You're the one that God wants to bless. And not only did God bless you, but God sent the blessed one to you. He sent Jesus to you, the Messiah, whom really Abraham was looking forward to all along. His son was an example uh, of, of what Jesus would do, right? That we're the ones on the altar, and we're about to be killed, to be sacrificed. But no, now there's a ram in the thorn bush over there. That's Jesus in that story. And so he says all along, and then to connect back to last week, when he says all the prophets from Moses to Samuel, all throughout, all of them pointed to Jesus, all the way back to Father Abraham, to this one. But the blessed one that I sent, you blessed ones, rejected him. He goes back to this. This is the theme in Acts 3. But this is what really gets us into this idea of this series, New Thing. This is where we begin to see sort of a shift and Peter takes a little bit longer to get there than Paul, but we, we see a bit of a shift here because somewhere along the way, again, Peter's talking to a Jewish crowd. You're the blessed ones, you're the chosen ones, you're God's people, right? But somewhere along the way, we non-Jews got involved in this whole thing. H how did that happen? That's really a question that we'll see asked in a lot of different ways throughout our study in Acts. The church is wrestling with this idea. It seems like Jesus opened this up to everyone, but our whole mindset all along has been it's just for a chosen few. How do we bridge that gap? How do we reconcile these differences? So we'll see different discussions, different laws, different uh, councils that the church has in Acts where they try to figure out who's included, who's invited, who's involved, and what do we do about that? And so that's really the main question that we see here. Uh, big questions, you know, sort of like two sides of the same coin here. You could ask this question. Is, God, is Israel's rejection of God, does that mean that he's through with Israel as his chosen people? Is that why we're included? Do Christians now replace Israel as God's people? And again, we get to go to Brother Paul here in Romans because he's going to help us for just a minute answer that question that's sort of starting to brew here a little bit uh, in, that we see in this text and then moving forward in Acts. So back to Romans, we'll be in Romans 11, kind of working through another passage here for just a couple minutes uh, to look at this idea of, of, of who's blessed. If we're talking about this life in Christ means that you're blessed, but Peter's talking to a Jewish crowd about them being blessed, what, what does that mean? How do we do that? So Romans 11, verse 11, let's walk through this here for just a couple minutes. Paul says this, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery that's the question at hand paul says of course not there's your answer okay paul said it we're done okay they were disobedient so god made salvation available to the gentiles that's you and me but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves this is a reversal of the old testament God chose Israel basically as the light of the world, you know, as my people. I'm going to hold them high. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to guide them. They are my chosen few. And the other nations, they'll be an example to them of my favor and blessing on them. So it's a reversal here. So moving on, he says, Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. So there's the other part of that question. 
God has not thrown Israel to the side. They still are under his covenant blessing from Abraham in Genesis, even though they rejected their Messiah. He goes on to say this, I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree, we're getting to another analogy here that we'll talk about in a second. If the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. I know there's a lot there. Let's look at it for just a second. Again, this idea of the tree, this, the tree represents Israel, God's blessed people, God's chosen people, his covenant people. When Christ came, those that rejected him, Peter, or Paul says, were broken off. The branches came off the tree. But there's another tree here, a Gentile tree to where we are. And some of us said, no, I want to receive Jesus. I want to accept Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. So then what God did is he took the branches, the believing branches off this other tree and grafted them into this existing blessed covenant people tree, okay? So that is where this comes together. That is why he says, is Israel done for? No, they're still there. But then the people who believe that weren't in that tree originally have been brought in. So we share in the covenant blessing. So this is why we, in some, now we have to be careful in interpreting Old Testament. This is why we, as non-Jews, can share in, in a lot of what we read. That's why we read the Old Testament still, right? Because we can still share in some of what, in, in a very unique sort of way, as a grafted-in branch, what God said to his people thousands of years before. We can, and really what we do is we can see Jesus through that. that that's where the grafting of the branches really becomes important. Some of the cultural things get lost on us, and some of the, some of the cultural things we don't uh, do anymore, or we, we don't observe anymore, but we see through that somehow Jesus through those things. This is that new life that is a life of blessing. So what this all means, again, is we are now descendants of Abraham. We weren't, but we are now. We've been grafted in. We're part of the same blessing of the descendants of Abraham. We weren't, but we are now because we're grafted in. We are recipients of this blessing promised to God's people because the promise was really Jesus. It wasn't the law. It wasn't good works. It wasn't obedience to the statute. It was always faith in those things and now faith in Jesus. So because of our new life in Christ, we're added in to God's special people. Let's finish with this one verse. So before... Just Israel was, again, the light of the world. But what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. This is for anyone who would follow him. 
We're now part of that city on the hilltop. We are blessed in this way. We receive the blessing from God, this covenant from God as his people with this new life in Christ. But one more thing, though, is we're not just blessed to be blessed. We're blessed to be a blessing. It's not so I can say, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm right with God. Good for me, bad for you. No, it's like now my life is an open invitation for others to be grafted into this tree that I'm grafted into. I have the, I've received the greatest gift. I belong to the greatest family, and now I get to share this good news with others who are lost, who have been broken off, who are, who are dead. I get to invite them to join me and experience this new life. So if you're a new person, you get to live this new life of refreshment. I can breathe. You live this new life of restoration. I have hope here and for later. And I live this life of, blessed, of blessing to be a blessing. So my encouragement this week is to enjoy your new life in Christ. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this offer of new life in Christ. Thank you that Jesus is our refreshment. He takes our sin, shame, guilt upon himself. He takes our worries, cares, fears, insecurities himself. He says, come to me and I will give you rest and refreshment. God, thank you that Jesus is our restoration, that he restores our relationship with you that was fractured by sin. Thank you that Jesus shows us glimpses of restoration, and thank you for the hope that we have in his resurrection that one day full restoration will come. Thank you for this life of blessing, that through Jesus we're now part of the favored people of God. We were not, but now we are through Christ. We are now heirs to your kingdom because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. So God, may we walk in that refreshment. May we give you our burdens and our cares and find rest in Jesus. May we hope in this restoration, even in the midst of the chaos, worries, cares, pain, in life. May we hope in restoration through Jesus. And may we live this life of blessing in order to be a blessing. May our life be a continual open door for others to see the work that you're doing in us, that they can experience new life as well. May we be open and ready and willing to share this good news of Jesus with others that need that so desperately for themselves. May we live this life of blessing to be a blessing. Thank you for refreshment, restoration, and blessing in this new life through Jesus. And I pray that we would walk in that newness of life this week as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.